Welcome to Halting Towards Zion, the podcast where we limp like Jacob to the promised land and talk about life, the universe, and everything along the way. I'm your host, Brian Broom, joined uh, once again by Greg Uttinger and Emily Maxson. And today we will be discussing the historical event of uh, Saul's defeat and uh, suicide and the Amalekite who brings the evidence of his death to David, expecting a reward and clickbait title, What Happens Next Might Surprise You. <laughs> <laughs> so Greg, why don't, why don't you uh, kick us off here? Please remember that uh, the two books that we have as Samuel were originally one book. So this is a deliberate flow through by the original author or editor who's pulling together the source documents from eyewitnesses. But he's he, he's telling a story. And this is not just a, oh, isn't it odd that this one ends here and this one begins here? No, this is part of the way it's set up and that God ordained. Doesn't that also put this at the center of the book, which is a significant place <laughs> in Hebrew writing in general? <laughs> yeah. It, um, reckoning it as a chiasm, I, I'm not quite sure. I've never tried that, but it would be interesting. Uh, it's also. So I had a, a nickel for every time someone pointed out a chiasm. <laughs> I grew up not even knowing what they were, and now it's like every, there's a chiasm. No kidding, it's Bible. Um, for those of you who <laughs> sometimes know, people see them where I don't see them. Yeah. Actually, Emily, why don't you explain chiasms? Oh, first? A chiasm. So it's named after the Greek letter chi, which is shaped like our X. So the idea is that there's a parallelism between the beginning and the end whether it's lines of poetry or themes in a story. And there's parallels with the second thing and the second to last thing. And so then the high point or the emphasis or something important happens in the very middle that sort of turns the whole thing, becomes the hinge point. And if we were to look at all of Samuel that way, I, this certainly is significant, but what may be even more significant is with Saul dead, it's not so much the death of Saul, it's the enthronement or the uh, coronation of David as king of Judah, which follows hard upon, mm -hmm. which is in a sense where all this is going, but we will get there in a bit. So in chapter 31, the Philistines are fighting against Israel and Israel's losing. Remember that Saul had been to a witch who inadvertently had become the, the channel for God to send back, inadvertently on her part, but the, the channel for uh, God to send Samuel back from the grave to pronounce Saul's doom. That gave Saul 24 hours to repent. He did not use it as such. Goes on to the battlefield. And we can speak of his courage and his stubbornness and his tenacity, but he dies. He's going to be killed. His sons die. Even our beloved Jonathan dies in the battle. Saul is hit by the archers. And he knows this is it. He's, he's been hit too badly. He can't recover. He can't survive. But he's not dead yet. And the Philistines are going to come and they're going to abuse him and make fun of him and torture him and all that. And so he's he wants the easy way out. He turns to his armor bearer and says, draw your sword, thrust it through me. Lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and abuse me. His armor bearer refuses because he knows, oddly enough, that that's wrong. It's called murder. But he's, so, he's afraid of probably multiple counts. And so Saul takes the sword and falls upon it. And his armor bearer does likewise. And so that's that's that. That's the end of that. There's a few more details that we'll skip over. Beginning of 2 Samuel, David and his men 
have just returned from a little expedition rescuing their own families who had been captured by Amalekites, uh, which which lends a little um, something to this. um, We're about to meet another Amalekite. Came to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David, he fell to the earth and did obeisance. David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. David said unto him, How went the matter? I, I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, The people are fled from battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. Notice John, Saul and Jonathan. The king and the crown prince are both dead. Implication, leaving the succession unclear at the moment. There were other sons who died too. But there at least one son who was not there didn't die. And the young man that told him said, so now he slows down to explain how he knows this. David says, how do you know this? Well, as I happened by chance upon Mount Cup, I just happened in the middle of a battle to just be in the middle of it. Obviously, the guy's a looter and David can read between the lines. That's this, but it's not, it, throw, it may throw a, a slight shade on the guy's character, but it doesn't necessarily change the information. Behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when we looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art you? Who are you? Who art thou? And uh, I answered him, I'm an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet holden me. So, I, this was not premeditated. I just happened to be there. Saul initiated. He asked to be killed. He's um, dying. He recognizes that although he's not dead yet, he's he is dying. And I stood upon him and slew him because I was sure he could not live. So I, I double-checked it, checked the vital signs. Yep, he's dying. He's bleeding out. He's going to die. He's in pain. So I killed him. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was upon his arm and have brought them unto my Lord. Now, what the man obviously is expecting is some kind of reward. Because he claims to have killed David's enemy, the man who stood between David and the throne. And it wasn't, and he's probably heard rumors that David is taught kind and merciful and tender and all that. And after all, he is Saul's son-in-law. So he, he makes it sure that this wasn't, David needs to know this is not a vicious act. It was mercy killing. He wanted to die. He was going to die. I just helped him out. And implication, implication, now the way is clear for you to claim the throne. Because all the the crown prince is dead. And he'll find out later that everybody who was in Saul's family, who was actually a warrior of any sort, died. The remaining son is kind of a softy who stayed at home in bed or something. And, and so this man is thinking, I, I not only bring the news, and messengers of good news often get rewards, but I'm going to claim that I actually expedited the matter. Uh, some people down through the years, some critics have said, see, there's a contradiction in Scripture. First Samuel gives us one account, and Second Samuel gives us another account. <laughs> Second Samuel gives us the account that someone lied about. <laughs> yeah. The account Brian, of someone telling a lie. If you could only see Brian's face in hand right now. <laughs> that is such a stupid argument. I'm sorry. <laughs> and, and all the more stupid when you realize these were one book, and the author who had just finished the last story is the one writing this part. <laughs> right. 
He what? He has early dementia. And can't remember what he wrote like three paragraphs earlier. No, this was uh, like Wheel of Time. They had a separate author come in and finish it. You know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh I'm so disappointed. I'm glad I never started the series. Anyway, uh, no, this is yes. You just Emily says he's lying, and David thinks he's lying. Judge by by what he says, but this is Brian says this is not what you expect. And what the man, the Amalekite, expected was reward, praise, maybe a high post in government, who knows, something. But David took hold on his clothes and rent them, and likewise all the men that were with him, and they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. So that takes us to the end of the day, but now we back up to when David has a moment. And so apparently the Malachites are standing there watching, saying, what's this? I just told you your enemy's dead. And you're all crying like babies. I don't get it. The other thing that I did mention, uh, he's an Amalekite, and, and David's going to kind of come back to that, but he won't make too big a deal about it. But while um, David was away on the battlefield, Amalekites had come and raided Ziklag, his hometown, and taken his family and the family families of all of his men had gone off, and David and his men had to go to hunt them down. So they weren't really disposed to like Amalekites right now. So given that, the fact that David and his men didn't do something violent to the guy right away means that they were willing to listen and be reasonable and not judge one particular ethnic group by, well, what a whole bunch had just personally done to them. Uh, and so David talks to the young man and says, Whence art thou? He answered, I am a stranger and a Malachite. Stranger is an official title. It doesn't simply mean he comes from outside of Israel. It means he lives in Israel, but he's not a citizen. So our word would be a resident alien, I suppose. Immigrant, non-citizen immigrant. But the point is, he's not some foreigner who doesn't know how Israel Israel works. He's lived there. His family's been spent some time there. So he knows, David, basically what David's saying is, do you have enough of familiarity with Israeli law to know what's going on here? <laughs> um, he, David doesn't ask it that way, but the man betrays that, yeah, I, I've i lived here for at least a while. After all, he's speaking Hebrew at this point. Um, so, okay, just, just checking. And so David asks some, a somewhat rhetorical question. David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? <laughs> um, in, alarm in, bells, alarm bells. <laughs> uh, um, backpedal, backpedal. My mommy's calling Well, me. here's uh, my day so far. <laughs> uh, in Baalistic culture, it was a crime to try to assassinate the king. However, because obviously the king was there by the will of the gods. However, if you, if you succeeded, then that obviously was the new will of the gods. And you that, and then it was okay. Um, Otherwise, you wouldn't have been able to do it. You wouldn't have been able to do it. And so you might even ascend the throne at that point with the applause of the people. And so coming from an alien culture, David, if he as, as he in some respects did, although he lived in Israel a long time, he might be able to use the excuse of, well, yes, God will be. Right, because he because I succeeded, God, and so David has to express it in terms that mean something. He is the Lord's anointed. God, by a particular act within history, designated him to be king, 
And neither you nor I have the authority to overturn God in that respect. God can. But we as private citizens cannot. It's what's all that's going in there. And David has uh, faced this with his own guys a couple times when they said, oh, there he is, there's Saul, you can kill him now. No, God will take care of him, the fallen battler. God will remove him somehow, but I'm not going to do it. And he does not wait for a response because the Amalekite is probably tongue-tied and realizes he's in a lot of trouble. David called one of the young men and said, go near and fall upon him. That means go kill him. Now, David is the prince of this Philistine town called Ziklag. So he is a legitimate magistrate. Um, and apparently, um, yeah, he's in Ziklag at the time. So, the, so a foreign, a, a man who claims to have committed murder on the battlefield, a battlefield he had no business being on, comes to a prince and a magistrate and basically surrenders himself for execution, although that's not what he meant to do, but that's what he effectively has done. And David passes summary judgment. Okay. Now, one little thing, uh, the law repeatedly says you need two or three witnesses for uh, execution. And we've seen this before in the book of Joshua, that a confession with corroborating evidence does count as your second witness. It's two uh, lines of, what is it? Two distinct lines of two distinct, or Right. Two distinct reason. lines of, of evidence count. Uh, and, and so when we read two or three witnesses, we need to, we need to not take that too literally. I have uh, a former student friend who was uh, uh, a DA in Sacramento. I was a, a Superior Court judge. And I, and I asked him about, and his wife was also a DA. I asked them about uh, what they thought of trying a case with eyewitness testimony. And they said, give us circumstantial evidence every time. We'd rather try, <laughs> try and win with that because eyewitness testimony is so notoriously unreliable. Mm. Yeah, everybody thinks they saw something and they, they can't remember their own story, nor do they cooperate with everyone else's story. Uh, a line of, uh, line of physical evidence is much more secure. Yeah. Um, and so it, just, it shouldn't be surprising that God is here willing, as he did in the days of Joshua with um, Achan, willing to accept the second line. The man brought his, the bracelet and the armband, which he could not. The only way he gets them was over Saul's dead body. So obviously, he <laughs> the only way to get a lightsaber is to kill a Jedi. Exactly. The only way to get a saber of darkness is to win in battle. Yeah. So obviously, he had seen Saul dead, dead enough that he could remove the royal treasures from him. Oh, with the crown too. I forgot that. Uh, secondly, he claims to have done this. So he's testified against himself. And there is this, this circumstantial corroborating evidence. And David says, okay, you want to be executed? Kill him. But David's next remark is interesting. He says, thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth hath testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. That sounds like David maybe didn't believe him or, or wasn't absolutely sure he was telling the truth because he, th he rests it on, you know, why, why would a judge need to justify himself unless there might be some reasonable doubt? Unfortunately, the only reasonable doubt would come from the man who just confessed. Mm -hmm. And so David says, it's, it's on you. I, you. I have your testimony. We have evidence. We're done here. Right. 
if you uh, if you cared so much about fabricating this tale and this evidence, all right, <laughs> take the consequences take of the it cons- being convincing, even if it's not really. <laughs> yeah, even if I'm not sure you did it, you have presented a legal <laughs> argument. Uh, well, sure, too. You, the guy probably is marching to this village where where. David is a legitimate authority going, okay, so what's the story? What am I saying? He's yeah. probably thought this through. Like, what's the most convincing way to let yeah. him know that, like, I'm on his side. I'm his man. I'll kill people if he wants me to. And then yeah. it just goes exactly the opposite direction. And <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would watch a skit about that. That would be hilarious. <laughs> oh, um, among the many side issues, I'll just throw this out. I don't know that we need to expand upon it, but there are those, of course, and there have been forever, who say, see, the law can make wrong judgments. And the problem with capital capital punishment is you can't undo it when you find out you were wrong. So we should never execute anybody for anything because we could be wrong. You could Here's be wrong David. about anything. Yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is that capital punishment is kind of permanent, is the argument. So we can punish them other ways. I mean, okay, so we just took 20 years away from your life by prison. Yeah, that's somehow less permanent. We'll say we're sorry. Um, There are the consequences. If you're going to inflict consequences, you can't call them back. And David here seems to at least suspect um, or at least be open to the possibility that this man's lying. And yet he pushes right through and puts it on his head and says, it's between you and God now. I've done my job. Our work is done here. So that's the story, and it will lead to David sending, first of all, it leads into a, uh, a hymn of lament that David writes to celebrate uh, and to memorialize the works of, of Saul and Jonathan, this, the great place they have played in Jewish history, even though he was, even though Saul was his enemy, tried to kill him repeatedly. And after that, he sets his sights on Judah, and Judah welcomes him to the throne, and we turn the corner for what we've been waiting for ever since Saul's first stumble, that God would provide a new man, a, king, a man after his own heart, a new king for Israel, and a new covenant. In fact, the whole book of 1 Samuel is sort of the collapse of the Mosaic covenant, loss of the ark. It's never restored to the tabernacle. We're worshiping wherever we want now. We have a king and he's failed. We have a shepherd boy who's going to be king, but he's on the run. And now finally, we're kind of setting forward toward the establishment not only of the formal Davidic covenant, but also the construction of Solomon's temple. So we're we're, we're on a, ch- a course that's charted for the next thousand years. Uh, it's, a, it's a turning point in history. But what we're talking about specifically today, I think, is uh, this matter of mercy killing, euthanasia. And of course, at this point, you have to throw in the, and all of these high school students were giving the assignment of writing an essay about euthanasia. And so they all, all but one failed because he actually, although he wrote poorly, wrote on the topic of euthanasia. All the others wrote about youth in Asia <laughs> because uh, yes. their vocabularies were so poor. So a comment on the, I think that's a real story. It's a comment on the American educational system. Yes. For those who may not know, euthanasia is mercy killing. So the, uh, Etymology of that would be the EU prefix meaning good and then thanasia standing for death. Good death. Yeah. Or for those who watch Marvel movies, Thanos. Oh, yep. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You, as in 
euangelium, the good news. Well, here, euan, euthanos, good death. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an interesting point because so the word for death in Greek is thanatos, right? Yeah. Um, but the the root of it is just thanos. Right. And that form never appears by itself. There's always a prefix. Mm. Otherwise, it's thanatos instead, which is just really an interesting concept, I think. But okay, sorry. that's interesting. Rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> the nerd in us is showing. Okay. <laughs> so to recount, to 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 plead the Amalekites case. Let me repeat what he he can. He has in in principle said it. He could say if you got a chance to retry this before some other court. Okay. Uh, no premeditation. So it's it's not, I mean, yes, I meant to kill him once he asked me, but I didn't go there to kill anybody. I didn't wake up saying, hey, that would be a good day to kill somebody. Uh, circumstances, it was a battlefield. You can't control what's going on there. People die all the time. That's what it means. Uh, and I was just my life even being there. Yes, fine. You want to say I'm a looter, go for it. But that in itself tells you that that was the, the length and breadth of my desires. I wasn't there to kill people. I just found people who had already died and took their stuff. So I'm, I'm not by nature a violent man, and I'm willing to risk my life to support my family in this calling of looting the dead. Um, and then, but third, I, Saul made the first, he reached out to me first. He saw me and he called me over. I would never have gone to him. If I had known he was alive, I would have gone the other way. But he called me over. Third, just by looking at him, I could see, I mean, there's arrows sticking in him. I could see he was dying uh, and beyond recovery. And even if there were a possibility, there's no 911 to dial. I don't got an ambulance. I can't drag him off the battlefield. Death is inevitable at this point. And he's suffering. He is in pain. Furthermore, he is, he probably, he might live long enough for the Philistines to come. And if they find him alive, they are going to mock him and abuse him and torture him. It's going to be a horrible existence for as long as they can keep him alive. So I can free him from all that. Uh, just physiologically, it's hurting. He is in a great deal of pain already. I can free him from that. And he, and, and he asked me to do so. This was his plea. He's a king. And he's given me this order, a royal request. And that's how kings order things. They just ask for them. Finally, if we want to get picky about this, this man is worthy of death. He has killed, murdered the king's priest, or the God's priest, the Lord's priest. He has been hunting David, your Messiah, all over the place, trying to kill him. Um, and, and there was this whole thing. I've heard some rumor about this demon possession thing. So he was a man who was worthy to die, wanted to die, couldn't live. And by killing him, I freed him. So obviously, I did the world a favor in all directions. Did him a favor, David a favor, Israel a favor, Philistines a favor, um, everybody. So I obviously, at the very least, should be let go. Probably I should be rewarded by everybody involved. There's the argument. If it's rest. It and how still do we... doesn't change the fact that he lacked <laughs> the authority to, to do that. <laughs> It's like every uh, all the, the soldiers were on like they they had the authority because they were soldiers Soldier enlisted show. in some sense of the term, and right. they went there for the express purpose of fighting and killing God's enemies. Right. Um, 
or if you're thinking of a Philistine, then they were God's enemies coming to yeah. fight God's people. But that's not necessarily winning your case either. <laughs> but still, it's, it's, a, it's a weird kind of claim to make that because the king told me to kill him, it's okay to kill him. Yeah. Because there is still the, not only the injunction from multiple places in the Mosaic Covenant, but also the Noahic Covenant before that, which says if you slay someone, your blood is on your head. It, you should also be slain by whatever counts for authority near you. So it, it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 you mean... The whole mercy thing. He, he was hurting. Doesn't a man have a right to end his own life? No. no it turns <laughs> out you don't because there, God gave you that life and he didn't leave it up to you as to when it ended. It's also interesting because um, while you were describing that, I was thinking of um, what little of City of God that I, I made it through before I got engaged and then my attention was <laughs> elsewhere and books were not like a thing you I could sit down. You mean you were down. busy after that? What? I was busy. I was like distracted by plans. Um, but I, I do remember there was a charge that the pagans would consistently bring against Christianity. Um, particularly after Rome was uh, sacked one of its many times. I forget exactly which time uh, happened in Augustine's lifetime offhand. But the claim was, your, your Christian women, your, your nuns, your uh, single women who were helping in church in some capacity, they were sexually mistreated by the invading pagans. Well, why didn't they just kill themselves? That would have been the honorable thing to do. It would have saved them all the suffering. Why did God let, like, why, why didn't they do this? Obviously, they either wanted it to happen or they uh, ended up enjoying it. You know, all these perverse, evil kinds of arguments against this. Um, and Augustine basically said, let's look at the people in your history who have committed suicide <laughs> to avoid these kinds of things and ask yourself the questions, was that worth it? <laughs> because it wasn't. And... The, the women that he then comes to the defense of, he, he essentially makes the argument at multiple points, he covers it in several subchapters, is they recognized that God was the one who ordered life, and it wasn't their duty to, it, it, it's not a human's duty to prevent as much um, ill fortune as possible, if, if I can use that phrase. It's not their job to prevent as much pain as possible by by means of something ungodly, especially. But it's also just generally not our job to try and figure out, okay, what's the balance here? Let's look at this utilitarianly and figure out, okay, this thing I would want to do is kind of bad, but it's going to prevent me from feeling all these other bad things and <laughs> uh, horrible physical pain and, and psychological torment. So it's okay because the balance comes out ahead. This is yeah. less bad than all of this bad. And that's not the way that morality works, uh, generally speaking. Yeah, the fundamental issue here is who defines the right to live and die? Who defines under what circumstances we may live and die? We like to believe that we are in charge of our own lives and that we can take them however we want. In fact, 
once you get to that point, and we can live them any way we want because it's my body, my life, my choice. And the only problem is, 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 as you say, it's not true. We are God's creatures. He gave us life on his terms by a sovereign plan and decree. We, we did not give birth to ourselves. We did not choose the time, place, and circumstances of our birth, our physical connection. We did not choose our parents, our eye color, our skin color, our hair color, where we're going to live, where we're going to be born, how we're going to be educated to small children. We chose nothing. God puts us here. God takes us home on his, uh, or calls us to judgment. Uh, on his timetable and schedule. Well, that means some people are going to hurt. Yes, this is called the curse. And it's something we brought upon ourselves by disobeying God. Yeah. Uh, now, God does establish, now here's the other side, God does establish civil authorities to whom he does grant the right of capital punishment. Uh, and the Mosaic Law is very clear. You, there needs to be substantial agreement of the evidence but obviously is here not perfect agreement because we are not God and we are not omniscient. Yeah. God it's worth has, noting also that God speaks of the innocents, like yeah. the, the blood of the innocents crying out. So despite the fact that we've all sinned, despite the fact that we all deserve eternal wrath and judgment, the Lord recognizes this category of, oh, you've treated people in ways they did not deserve to be treated and their blood is crying out to me and I will, will hear that. Yeah. yeah. The the authority of civil government to execute is very sharply circumscribed. Mm -hmm. Two or three direct lines of corroborating evidence. Uh, a, someone who is legally appointed the job of, and, and recognized as such by the community in which he lives, is having the legal authority to try to reach a decision and execute justice. And where these things fail, even if we're sure, even if the the... the Newspapers are full of stuff that make us absolutely sure the guy's a murderer. If the jury doesn't convict or the judge doesn't pronounce judgment, then that's that. Um, the, the courts are not there to render perfect justice. We've talked about this in a different context. But the Bible does not envisualize perfect justice. And the Bible is willing to admit that sometimes human courts are going to get it wrong. Even wrong in the direction of punishing people who in terms of civil law, should have been punished, but the evidence all pointed that way, and the, a good search and trial was made, and uh, witnesses brought forward, and jury or magistrates, uh, unanimous. And yes, you did the best you could. <laughs> you did. You did what you could with what you had. And you tried hard, and God does not say, "Well, you executed him, and it turns out he was innocent after all." Ha! So you're all murderers. God never says that. God, and David walks away from this. Not perhaps certain that the man is actually guilty. It sounds the story sounds fishy like everything, but the evidence is there, and he does his job, and he moves on, and he never looks back. Uh, he has done what was required of him, and it is more important in God's economy that we obey His word as best we can under our limited circumstances. And sometimes this means the guilty go free. More often, it means the guilty go free. Occasionally, it may mean the innocent suffer. Because you can't always get two or three witnesses or lines of evidence to anything. Yeah. <coughs> Try to. And then we also, to. then we also have the, um, I guess, juxtaposition between the Amalekite and David. Whereas mm -hmm. David is an a legitimate authority mm -hmm. uh, instituted by God. Not only is he a magistrate of this Philistine town, like you've mentioned, but he is also now 
even though he hasn't been crowned yet, he is the next person in line for mm. Israel's throne. And he's been he, anointed at this point, correct? Oh yeah. Yes. Oh yeah. He's been anointed for a while. Um, so he he is the anointed, not quite king, but king. Yeah. And he has authority from God to mete out justice. And then you have the Amalekite, who is none of that, uh, <laughs> but he also is acting outside of the civil authority in general. He is a vigilante in that yeah. sense. So we have authority, just godly authority, and rebellious of authority. So mm -hmm. just like Saul is the epitome of a rebellious individual, even though he's in power, we have someone who is like him, who claims to have killed him, and expects the world's method of repayment for that act. And the answer is, yeah, rebellion doesn't get you anywhere. <laughs> except a grave. Except of witchcraft. Yeah, the, um, I, I think you could make a good case that at least on one level, and there are, there, are, there are many levels to what the Bible is trying to teach us all at once. It's never just a single lesson. But we are tracing uh, the long history of Israel in wanting a civil magistrate to fix all of their problems we get one, and he is, from day one nearly, day two at least, in rebellion against God. Over against that, we have a man who's the future king and who's on the run, and yet he refuses to play vigilante. He, he is a vigilante in part in that he has a bunch of guys out in the wilderness and they're dealing with bandits and crooks and people like that because he's got an army and why not? Um, but he's not out there waging war, and he refuses absolutely to turn the military power he has against the suppressive king. So we're seeing the decline of the rebellious legitimate authority and the patient waiting of the could-be-but-isn't-vigilante. And right when we're at the end of this, in steps the Amalekite into a plot stream that he doesn't even know about it and says, Hey! <laughs> I displayed vigilante. Aren't I cool? And James McKay's looking at him have you not been reading the last few chapters? Do you not know what's going on? <laughs> um, Haven't you been reading no, the news? Yeah, it doesn't work that way. And we're not going to wait. And it's, it's, it's amazing and almost amusing how little time David takes with this. It takes more time <laughs> for the guy to tell a story than it does for David to solve the problem. Follow on him. <laughs> and we move on. And because I say, we don't look back. Um, yep. So in terms of the modern move toward euthanasia, we, we, we again say it is right to pity people who are suffering. The Bible commends this to us over and over. We are to weep with those who weep. Uh, it commends to us visiting those who are sick. It talks about how to approach God for healing and such. Having said that, it does not say that pain is such a thing that it overrides all concern for all of God's other laws. Because if we are allowed to kill someone to end their suffering, what other laws are we willing to break to earn suffering, to end mm -hmm. suffering? What other things will we do? Who will we hurt? Um, if I, you know, we, we can talk here about killing King Saul, but we could take this into another thing. Someone is about to uh, commit a murder. Well, if I kill him, he can't. And that will save someone from suffering. Mm 
we saw this back uh, in the when the pro-life movement was going kind of wacky and veering to the left, where we had uh, low gunmen who would go out and attack attack abortionists because uh, I need to end the suffering of all these babies and stop their deaths so I can I have the right as a private citizen since the federal government has failed, the state governments have failed to kill this abortionist because I know he's going to kill more babies and cause more suffering and more pain and all that. No. But why not? Because your your values are skewed. You think that life is the most important thing or to end suffering is the most important thing. Well, you know what? The abortionist thinks that ending suffering is pretty important. He's willing to kill a baby to do it so that this young woman does not have to suffer um, social yes. disgrace and career alterations and the bondage of raising a child. He cares a lot about her suffering and he's willing to kill somebody. For How are you different? Well, I'm working for God. No, you're not. Because here's we, we have here on the Bible, we have God's instruction manual for how yep. these things play out. And unless you are a king, a judge, a magistrate, uh, given proper authority from God by whatever channels society has established, uh, you don't have the right to go around killing people. Yeah. Even to even to stop suffering, and not even necessarily to save life that is not currently being threatened. Um, this guy's a mass murderer. He's been released on pardon. I know he's still a wicked man. He will kill other people tomorrow. I must go kill him now. That's not the same thing as there is someone in my house at night and I can make out just enough to see that he's got a gun and I will now grab mine and shoot him to protect my family. Those are not the same thing. Although some people try to make them out to be the same thing. Self-defense of your home and family when there is a clear and present danger is not the same as going out and finding people who may, maybe really certainly will, kill or harm other people and taking them out first. And as I've said many times, this, this is hard for Americans because we've been raised on vigilante literature and TV and movies where the guy who goes out and breaks all the rules and takes out the bad guy with his gun or fist or whatever, lightsaber, is, is the hero. He gets to ride off into the, the sunset or the double sunset, as the case may yeah. be. <laughs> <laughs> to the applause and cheers of many and celebrations across the, you know, the universe. Um, this is not God's way. And we have to, and learning the humility that David learned, learning to wait on God, for God to do things in, in his own time and his own way. Now, could the elders of Israel have done something? Yes, actually, they could have because they were the ones through whom Saul had been brought to the monarchy. God, Samuel had anointed him, God had anointed him through Samuel, but it didn't, it didn't kick in until the elders gave their okie-dokie. The elders, as legitimate magistrates, could have taken Saul to task, arrested him, and tried him for the murder of God's priests. They chose not to. And when other magistrates will not do their job, then oftentimes God's people's only response is to run away or to suffer. And again, in America, we don't like those options. But the guy's bad. I should be able to take my gun and shoot him. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger's line in uh, True Lies. But they were all bad. Well, that doesn't necessarily give you a right to kill them. Um, so this, this, is, this is where we're ending. We're ending with a, with a readjustment of our ethical thinking of picking a 
firm foundation and staying there, and that foundation must be the Word of God, which means we actually do have to read it and see what it says and not just assume, well, if I were God, I would think that, no, you're not God, and you don't know what God thinks until you've read it. Let Scripture correct your thinking a good deal, because by nature, we all want to play God, and we all think we know best, and we all think we should be able to have a life and death say over people we perceive to be worthy of death. Uh, But that's not God's attitude. All right. I think that is a good place to draw this discussion to a close. Uh, do we have any recommendations? Well, I'll throw one out. Oh, good. I do have it here. Um, back in 1979, Francis Schaeffer and C. Everett Koop eventually became a chief surgeon under Reagan, uh, wrote a book called Whatever Happened to the Human Race? It's a it is in some ways the seminal pro-life book. Uh, it's it's fairly short. It's hard. It originally was hard back in the good there paperback copies now. It is not the most profound thing you will ever read. It doesn't have all the statistics you want. It doesn't. It's not finely argued. In fact, there is a film series that goes with it. And I, I heard when I was in college, some of the people who had watched it they said, "Well, he spends all this time talking about whether or not the Bible can be trusted, and whether or not he's talking <laughs> about time and space events and." And they didn't say it, but what they were what what they didn't seem to understand was he's arguing against neo orthodoxy, <laughs> and it takes him a long time to do that before he ever gets to even talking about like well, there's a reason because there are a lot of people who claim the label Christian but don't want to obey what the Bible says, and so before you can talk about ethics, the ethics of life and death of abortion and euthanasia. Uh, you, you have to be sure that you trust the Bible to speak to time and space circumstances. You have to be sure that God is the sort of God who can speak into history, can speak propositionally, can speak in words that we can understand. So he spends a lot of time with this, but it's it's not, I think, a hard book. I, I think the only temptation would be to say, I don't see what this has to do with, with pro-life as such. Well, I, that, that was the hint. What he's doing is establishing that the God who is can speak to us in our circumstances with real words that make sense. Now, if you're an evangelical Bible-believing Christian, you may say, duh, but most of the world doesn't. And so that's why that's there. And if you're going into college, this may be a good place to start. So again, not the most exciting of books, but it's seminal. It's in some ways kicked off the pro-life movement in America. And um, you can can get through it. It's worth your time. Brian, you should go next. Oh, I should? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'm going to recommend small home repair because ah. uh, that is something I've had to do a lot in the past uh, several months. Just, <laughs> just little little things. Um, there's there's a bigger project that we have uh, this summer when the weather has warmed up here um, that we're basically saving up for, which is driveway re- uh, replacement. Mm. I will not be handling. And, uh, <laughs> in the meantime, there's just little little things around the house. Today, I felt really proud because I replaced the shower head in in the shower uh, <laughs> with a, a really nice. Wait, like, you keep double... your shower head in the shower? Is that I a do, Wisconsin actually. thing? Yes. And uh, yeah, I, I just it was just like one of those things. It's like the old one was really janky. And the new one is, you know, it's new. It has a handle. You can bring it down and, you know, it's it's a nice model. We got it at Aldi because Aldi has everything. Hey. It is magical. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's 
it's a nice thing. It makes you feel accomplished and it makes your house nicer. These are all good things and I recommend it. If you have something that you need fixing in your house, just do it yourself because it's a learning experience at the very least. And <laughs> at the end of it, you have something that looks very nice. Well, my, my, my uh, comeback to that is when you have a very, very, very old house where everything is rusted in place, <laughs> you can try it yourself because it'll make your wife think you're a hero. But when you fail uh, <laughs> and you still have to call in the guy and pay him a thousand dollars to fix all kinds of things that you just can't, you can't move because they are all rusted in place. Eh. My. But keeping your house maintained is a good thing. I My parents grew up in the Depression and their mindset, which I somewhat inherited from them, was good enough is good enough. It'll keep for another 10 years. We don't really <laughs> need to fix that. And um, I have found that your house runs better. People are happier and your home maintains its value. And it is a whole environment. It's not so trashy if you do the small repairs and keep up on them. So, yeah, yeah. amen. Yeah. We found in our house that whenever you're acquiring something new, whether it's a blender or a shower curtain or whatever, like there's always a trade off of we can get the cheap version if mm. that's good enough. We can get the nice ver version and we can get less nice things because fewer yeah. nice things because we've focused yes. our energy on the nice things. Right. And I think everybody has to draw that line for himself with regard <laughs> to different things and what's worth it to you because value is subjective. Um, see also until, until, it's, and, until it's not <laughs> until it's not. Yeah. Until you need somebody else to recognize the value of your stuff. Yeah. Um, or until you yeah. find out the thing you bought doesn't actually do what you thought it would do, and you right. end up buying the best thing afterwards. <laughs> My father did that a great deal. Because yeah. you your mindset, buy the cheap one, it'll mm -hmm. work, and then finding out, no, I need the one that actually does the job, and then so you end up with two of everything. Right. But, and that is the story of my life. And <laughs> uh, David and I have changed that pattern recently. And it's been delightful. Like we bought a nice blender and I'm like, mm -hmm. this is the best thing. And then every time you use it, you're like, I'm so glad I bought this one. Yeah. You know, it's not about the next one when I can afford to upgrade. It's like this one does what I want it to do. And it's <laughs> awesome. And I'm really thankful for it. That's good. So, yeah. Uh, my recommendation is going to be the board, board game Codenames, ah. which we played for the first time last evening i had played the the co what's the word collaborative version the uh, uh code names duet. duet yeah yeah which works really well if you have exactly four people i feel like <laughs> but if you've got a bigger group uh code names the original is a lot of fun and um it's sort of a how do i communicate ideas clearly to other people saying very little which is like the whole endeavor of poetry <laughs> in a board game so i i, I had a great wow. time a board game for poets cool <laughs> all right uh thank you so much both of you for joining me to discuss this and for your recommendations thank you as well to our listeners for joining us uh if you'd like to follow us you can do so at youtube rumble you can follow our facebook page where we regularly or at least did drop <laughs> dank memes for your yeah, regularly might be a stretch there <laughs> semi not so regularly uh drop dank memes for your enjoyment uh you can find us on i think all major podcast catchers or apps uh, if you hated all of our opinions and want to tell us you can email us at haltingtowardszion at gmail.com you can also send us the show yeah. 
let us know and and say nice things to us. We like yeah, yours as well. Yeah, it's not just for hate mail. We'd like to receive good things. Too. We would love to receive uh, love mail instead. <laughs> uh, you can also uh, support us on Anchor.fm forward slash halting towards Zion. And thank you to those of our listeners who already have joined the ranks of our financial supporters. I don't know if there's many ranks, but we have them, and we're very thankful for them. And also thank you to uh, David Maxson, Emily's lawfully wedded husband. Not my lawfully wedded husband. And uh, we will see you next time. Bye.